1: no proscenium the voice of everything immersive i'm your host noah nelson coming to you from los angeles and welcome to episode 366 this week on the show oh this is a big one felix barrett the artistic director of punch drunk is here to talk about the burnt city currently playing in london but that's not all we get into the state of the london immersive scene we talk larps PunchDrunk's own experiments with immersive gaming, video games, and of course, the origins of PunchDrunk itself, amongst other things. I'll tell you straight, I was nervous as heck about going into this because Felix and I had never talked before we hopped on this internet call, Uh, and I shouldn't have been. Not only is this the biggest interview of the year for us, but it's also one of the best in ages. I'm so excited to get you to it but we do have a few things to take care of first while we're talking about London, no pro Patreon backers should look to their Patreon feed because we have a special 20% discount off for two nights at rematches rumble in the jungle coming up in February, February 28th and March 1st. Those are the two nights. This is a recreation of the iconic fight between George Foreman and and the greatest himself, Muhammad Ali, conjured through projection mapping blended with performance and surrounded by a festival atmosphere that aims to capture the vibe of Fight Night 1974. If you've had a chance to look at what Rematch has done before, they did Wimbledon 1980, and let me tell you, I was agog at how they blended projection mapping and performance. Very very exciting stuff. Big thanks to no pro sustaining backer Richard Ayers for hooking us up with this. Backers check the feed. Speaking of Patreon backers, we remain on the right side of the halfway mark of our $5,000 a month funding goal. So we're over 2,500. We're marching forward. Right now, we're also just 13 shy of the 400 backer mark. You might remember we were like 5 shy before, and of course, Slip back, slip forward, slip back, slip forward. That's the name of the game on Patreon. Can we get there this month? Can we get those 13 backers to get us to that 400 mark? Well, we will if we get more support like the kind that we're seeing from returning sustaining backer Samuel Moustry, along with new backers Jordan Renda and Devin. And also some boosts and support we got from Lara Marson and Jonathan Pedigo. Thank you all. Remember, I like the $5 a month uh, set up myself I, I like to see a wide set of support uh, Just because it, it Not only does it feel good It also feels a lot more sustainable uh, When we're offering all this up For uh, less than the cost of a fancy latte I'm not even sure if it's less If it's more than a Starbucks latte at this point Because anyway That's that's all that No pro survival is in the hands of all of you We've got to keep moving the goalpost forward To hit episode 400 and beyond uh, And that's coming up That is coming up. All right. If you can, please jump in and back us at www.patreon.com slash no persinium. And if you already do, or times are tight like they are for me, take a moment to drop us a review on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice and help spread the word. It's silly, but it really helps as we watch Twitter fall apart. We're going to need even more help to get the word out there. Spread this thing, uh, spread this episode in particular, spread it on LinkedIn, spread it on Facebook, uh, anywhere you go and are, uh, if you like it and I know you're going to like it, let everyone know that we do this work. I am dead serious. The wider we cast the net, the better it is not only for us, but for all of the smaller companies whose work we cover all of the folks looking to gain an audience. This is why we do what we do to help those creators, creators that you love. So help them help yourself, help us all spread this episode around. All right. All right. enough, enough. Uh, gonna have plenty about uh, all of that in a bit. Uh, gonna talk about the dig, uh, which was this past weekend. Gonna get it all, but right now, just gonna give a big thanks to our sustaining backers Samuel Mustry. Welcome back, Samuel. Chris Woolman, Samantha Davison, Eric Shamlin, Elaine, Jay Bushman, Jerome Joseph Gentes, Wynn Thorne, David Bassick, Richard Ayers, Lonnie Hands On, Gillery, and Jan Budman. Thank you for keeping us going. I'll be back on the other side of this. Oh, oh, here we go. Here we go. For most people who listen to the pod, our guest today needs no introduction, but for the handful who do. Felix Barrett is the artistic director of Punch Drunk, the creators of The Burnt City in London, and Sleep No More, the show that started the ball rolling on what we here call the Immersive Renaissance, and which is currently playing in New York City and Shanghai. Felix, it's an honor to have you here on the podcast.
0: Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to be
1: here. This is going to be fun. Uh, First off... (laughs) I want to congratulate you and the team for getting the burnt city out into the world. From what I understand, this one was a long time coming. Am I right?
0: Oh, blimey. Yeah, completely. I think um, <laughs> before the word immersive was doing the rounds, we would, um, in fact, we've always thought of ourselves as a sort of site sympathetic theater company. And mm. we would always have no idea what show we're going to do until we went into the building. And I went into a building in 2010 um, which was actually two buildings linked by a theatre. One was like a 60s sort of futuristic uh, uh, or a 60s vision of the future, and one was a Victorian old crumbling pile. And we knew we wanted to do something Greek and thought, oh my gosh, two buildings, let's do the fall of Troy. And then the mm-hmm. building, as is often the way, fell uh, away. We lost the show. <laughs> Uh, and it's taken this long to get it on. So, uh, yes, that's 12 years.
1: Oh, my goodness. 12 years chasing chasing from, from, from walking into one building. Do you ever regret that you walked into that building?
0: <laughs> well, no, weirdly. I think um, it's, it's the most magical part of the job. It's like walking into a building for the first time. And this is definitely the first time that we've lost a show. because We've lost many along the way. Um, and then managed to sort of revive it because uh, the fates were looking out for us. and. Um, here in Woolwich, we have two two buildings again. We just had to build the link ourselves. So um, the gods were looking after
1: us because there there long been rumors about the, the the fall of Troy show and like it was like it was here, it was there, it was everywhere, yeah. and and then and then nowhere. And when you finally announce that you're actually opening it, I was I was so relieved for you guys because oh. chasing something for so long, uh, it, it can feel like feel like a bit of smoke or like an illusion like it's it's and and then to to bring it in uh after so long has got to be kind of ecstatic really
0: oh my gosh yeah it's like the ephemeral tendrils of mist or haze in a building and you can see it and then you touch it and it's evaporates that's what this show has felt like at times so it's amazing to finally got it concrete and open um And I suppose what's also more exciting for us as a London theatre company is to have our own building now. So we've also not only got the show, but we've also got um, a studio space. So we're going to sort of start to unpack like what what can we scratch away at whilst uh, whilst running this show. So it's um, it's amazing to have been able to put down roots in our home city.
1: I want to get into London in a minute, but before moving on from the Burnt City Aside from the logistical, aside from the long, uh, you know, road to get it up, what were you chasing creatively during this process? Because I've got to imagine this is this is the biggest show you've done uh, in in some time, and there had to have been you know lots of lots of just ideas and passions that were coursing through the company. So, what, what do you feel like you were chasing when you finally got down to to building the show?
0: Well, we knew we wanted to get to the Greeks because we were trying to do a a sort of um, a show that we could sort of settle into in London. Um, And we knew that because we've got an audience here who knows the work, um, we need to make sure it was as dense and as deep as it was wide. And um, the Greeks are sort of the ultimate (laughs) source material because, you know, the bedrock of Western theatre and um, there's just so much in there. I think I'm still a sort of frustrated classics scholar that never <laughs> studied it. Um, but just when you're dealing with something that's about the um, supernatural world hitting the world of mortals and big, weighty issues. Um, and, uh, you know, it's almost like all, all stories are held within the Greek canon. So I think it was really our opportunity to look at, um, like, the origin story of all theatre, as it were, you know, the stories that inspired Shakespeare came from this source material. So we were sort of going back to, um, back to the beginning. Um, And yeah, gods, monsters, mortals, heroes, it's all there. So it was just a chance to do a deep dive.
1: There is something of like sort of the, a packed in fractal to the, the Greek legendarium and the myths you, you 're right in that it's it is kind of all there and and can kind of put a drop of water on it, it and it unfolds like one of those little paper sculptures wow. um, so so you,
0: when
1: when you when you approach creating a world that big uh, and and I know you guys have a a sort of a syncretic method at points like pulling in different elements yeah. what did you find yourself? drawing on that that wasn't the greeks to to connect to the 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 modern audience
0: well i think we'd always had um ever since 2010 was the first i think about this project we historically always looked back and everything's got a sort of nostalgic veneer sort of that hazy dream world uh you know the ghosts of the past and with this we always even wanted to sort of look forwards And there's something about when you're dealing with um, uh, Troy, this sort of fabled metropolis, this legendary city, did it even exist, um, that sort of pushed us into sort of future dystopias, probably Mm. subconsciously via uh, Metropolis, the Fritz Lang movie, um, because for me, that was the sort of source that started all, um, kick-started all dystopic sci-fi. You know, it's uh, its influence across cinema, fiction, um, you know, all artwork is um, is really evident. And it's sort of the touch paper that sort of propels you into all of these visionary worlds. So we wanted to be inspired, imagine what a sort of punch-drunky future noir landscape would look like, um, Whilst also because it was written, well, because it was made in the twenties, and uh, you know that's it's a byproduct of that time, being able to sort of look backwards as well into the twenties and the space in Germany between the wars, you know that mm. period in time when there was such creative fertility um, in Germany because of the impact of the Great War. Like what, just imagining a city um, under duress, but that becomes a creative hot pot um it was all of those sort of starting points that were that drew us to it um but definitely it was the idea of a sort of um a visual landscape a palette that we hadn't gone to before that was really um alluring
1: i want to open the iris a little bit here um and talk about london uh you, you've got your new headquarters your new facility at the same time, it feels like there's more shows and experiences that are them, labeling themselves as, as immersive in London than there yeah. ever have been. Awesome. What, do you, what do you make of the scene being like this? This feels, I'm, I'm not there, but just judging from my team on the ground, I'm getting the vibe that it's it's more intense than it was back when you were doing The Drowned Man or, or, or Cabaret or anything before. It's, it's just a fundamentally different scene. Am I, am I wrong on that?
0: No, I think it's. I think firstly, it's fantastic that it seems like the scene has exploded and there's so much more work happening, uh, and it's just brilliant to see um, makers out there creating. It's um, you can yeah. It's 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 um, it's weird. When we were doing um, Sleep No More in Shanghai, you could feel on the streets this electricity and there's a desire to create. The weird is a touch that now in London, I think post COVID, people just want to you know, the idea of tactility and being close to performers felt quite illicit and now suddenly it's bounced back with a vengeance. Um, And, but I think what's interesting is also this sort of theatrical mechanics have shifted and Mm -hmm. it's become more, I think, back in the day, maybe back in the noughties, it was more of a sort of live art sensibility. It was coming from a place of, yeah, uh, art, exhibition, installation, Um, the durational and now I think it's shifted into more of a nightlife scene it's far more sort of um, uh, drinking culture is sort of impacted like where do you want to go and have the the best night out and then that's Hmm. the sort of shows are on offer Um, and um, a sense that you can be pulled into a sort of hinterland of of nighttime activity Um, and I think that's a definite shift so the actual sort of a tonal shift in the, the kind of work Um, so a shift in the
1: work and maybe also a shift in in who the audience is
0: oh my gosh completely what's so interesting is we've seen the audiences who have never seen in one of our shows because we haven't done a show here in this city for eight years probably Um, and so they're coming holding hands with um, each other actually they're coming with the same sort of um, uh, sort of skill set that you'd have for a a more sort of party style show uh, where it's um, coming to drink and play and participate and, um, you know, have adventures. And I think actually what's interesting is that um, we're trying to encourage our audience to separate and be by themselves, which is kind of in opposition to some of the mechanics of other shows. So it's interesting. We're having to sort of uh, re-educate our audience about how you do punch trunk shows um, in comparison to to other work out there. So it's, it's exciting. It's, it's, it's just brilliant and so much happening, but it's, it's funny how, um, we're having to, um, you know, teach a different vocabulary to our, uh, to our crowd.
1: That kind of, kind of segues into something that, that I've always been interested in, uh, this idea of teaching the audience, the vocabulary and and sort of how prepared they are for this kind of experience. Because sometimes, you know, I've watched when immersive first pops up in a city, audiences be incredibly timid. Like they don't know that they can walk across the room. They kind of have to be led, uh, you know, by like a sheepdog uh, to, to know that they have agency. And I've always noted that, you know, you've talked about in the past about the influences of video games on your yeah. work. And 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 we know that your work has, has in turn inspired game makers. I'm wondering, do you think that Punch Drunk could exist without a couple of generations worth of audience who grew up playing video games?
0: Wow, that's a really interesting question. And I actually do because I think, um, I think that it would be a more limited crowd. I think essentially where we came from as a company in the like, literally when I was, um, you know, when I was an undergraduate wanting to make installation based theater. I was in turn responding to, I suppose, the happenings of the 60s. I wasn't there, but I just read yeah. about them. And just like, um, as like, uh, theatre as event. event. Um, and then, but what I was exposed to, again, not by seeing, but by knowing it was happening, were the um, uh, site-specific um Sort of interventions that were happening across London and New York in the '90s. Um, So Deborah Warner's Angel Project, which sort of famously took over a disused space and populated it with performers as angels, and it was very much sort of durational performance. So it's the it's the language of the gallery, it's the language of the art world, and um, those sort of performance perform what was formerly called performance art. Um, I think that's where we came from as a company. And I think, so that's kind of what I wanted, what I was seeing as like, you know, theatrical landscape that you could explore, but it, um, it was, you know, the, the museum come alive uh, to explore in your own time. And so I think there's definitely a crowd who understood that sort of vernacular and that's the way they'd approach it. But when we started making it, I would, that was also the era when the internet was coming of age and suddenly the audience was getting used to having whatever thoughts and desires they wanted were only a couple of clicks away. But also I was, that was when the PS one was becoming the PS two and suddenly open world video games were just starting to come in. And I remember playing resident evil one around at my friend's house before I went to university and just marvelling at the sort of cinematic quality of it. And I didn't actually want to play it. I wanted to watch it and be in the <laughs> world of it. So I think, um, even though we, it's an art world, um, uh, sort of uh, initiative init- initially because we brought the sort of language of video games that sort of crept in but it really the, the, the defining point for me was actually was we never actually set out to do something which we borrowed from video games it was just um, what we were absorbing as we um, peripherally went through you know, our um, creative lives um, but it was only in, uh, when in New York in 2011 when the City the Moor had opened when they were doing the round- end of the year roundups that um, they were sort of talking about, you know, favorite theatre show of the year, favorite game of the year. That one critic gave us that, the best video game of the year. And we couldn't believe that someone was talking At well, first, I was like, well, this is ridiculous. But then the way they actually described the mechanics of the show, um, you know, swapping out, you know, one on ones for Easter eggs, swapping out, you know, just the open world sensibility, we realized that the overlaps are huge. And well, that was also when the immersive world was really starting to gain traction. And prior to that, it kind of existed in tech and video gaming. Right. And so that, sort of, that synergy was really um, starting to crystallize. So I think yeah. that's brought the audience with it.
1: It almost it almost feels like the because it was the term immersive sim. You had games like you know Deus Ex and and yeah. you know, the kind of stuff that Warren Spector worked on and yeah. and and then and and the sandbox idea and all of that I mean, all that terminology you know we use when talking about this work now. And it, it feels like it started there. It's also one of the things I always find funny when people get, uh, you know, nervous or feel buzzwordy about the immersive word. I'm like, yeah, but it comes from games. It was already there. Like everyone, calm down. Yeah. Like it, 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 me- it does have meaning. It has, it has legacy. Um, I mean, it's just a term, so it may move on one day. What, what matters more is the, oh, the, I, I the think, impact.
0: I think it will move on though. I'm actually, I've been starting to say this sort of because I really feel it profoundly, but. We are in the days of the horseless carriage where yeah. there, is a, there will be a new word which articulates the future of this sort of practice which will sort of more sort of literally fuse together video game mechanics and live action and how do you sort of um, increase the agency um, of an audience member within these worlds? Because I think it's just inevitable byproduct of you know, if, the, if this, the immersive scene has sprung out, it's almost an accidental live-action video game illusion. What happens when we stop doing it deliberately? Um, do you find yourself
1: um, d- diving into LARPs at all? Like, as, as a person, do you, do you go engage in that world ever?
0: Do you know what that sounds... Kind of one of my regrets is that I've never given myself the time to go and do them. Um, because I think I would learn loads, and I like the idea of them. But one block for me with a lot is the fact that you need to suspend your disbelief and you need to pretend you need to take a character that you inhabit so it's inherently uh laden with artifice because you're having to go in as your yeah your character i think what's um interesting for us and the sort of punch-trunk approach is that we want audience to never to, to be a really instinctual experience. You need to be yourself inside the environment. So it's always about how um, uh, we would never want someone to have to sort of suspect, you know, to have that layer, of that buffer of pretending to be uh, another, because I feel that it would be a psychological block. Like when we were doing, um, you know, the mask is one device that allows the audience to sort of be contextualized within the work. But um. The other way to do it is just to sort of be yourself, but out of context. We were doing a Crash of Elysium, which was our, um, our Doctor Who show that we did for kids uh, about like 10 years ago. Now it's crazy. But we will, that, this form will come back um, uh, imminently, I hope. Um, that was had no mask, and it wasn't a LARP as such because it was children going on an adventure but just not knowing that the LARP was around them. So um, uh, it started off where um, we did. We advertised it to parents, so they were told not to tell their children what they were going to see. Like, <laughs> Child's a Doctor Who fan. Book this ticket. Don't tell them. And then we built a false front for it, which was the most boring museum exhibition we could come up with uh, about a, a sunken ship that had been dredged up off the coast of Manchester uh and there were a few artifacts like an old mug and part of the ship's you know hull um and we cast the most he's a lovely man but like the we the most sort of um dry I say boring but kind of a performance possible deliberately so the all so the the audience the children were so painstakingly bored like eye-wateringly the bored they were dragging there was sort a of, holding on to their parents saying, please, can we leave? Um, And just at the point where they're literally about to weep with frustration at their Saturday afternoon being destroyed by their parents' pick of uh, exhibition, the alarms fire, like the power fails. There's a cacophony of sirens and um, the military come in and say, people, we need everyone to stay calm. We have a major crisis here. We desperately need your help. We need everyone over the age of 12 to take a step back. Children, we can't tell you what's going on, but we desperately need your help. We need you to come with us now. You've got 20 seconds to say goodbye to your parents. We're moving out. Oh my God. Uh, and that was the start of the show. Um, and it wouldn't have worked if the parents hadn't been in on it. because, Right, um, obviously.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: But that principle of the children going, being plunged into an adventure, but playing themselves in an adventure. and uh, So we marched the children out. Um, and then suddenly behind the museum, there's a major quarantine zone with military, you know, uh, uh, the works, um, towers, blockades. They go into a sort of a porter cabin unit. They get put in a haz, hazmat suit and get, get a full briefing by the military to explain that an alien spaceship has crash landed here and they need to gain passage to it. But adults can't get on board. Only children can do it. And uh, they have an immediate briefing, we're having to move, move, move. Uh, and um, they would play, they go to the crash site and show you the black box recorder uh, that has a message from the ship's doctor. And it's only at this point in, which is about 25 minutes into the show, that they press, they play the, the relay from the black box recorder from the crash ship. And the ship's doctor is Doctor Who, which is the first clue that it's fictional. Um, and it's that's, I suppose, when the audience, the children can relax into it, know that it's a show. And I oh, suppose okay. when it comes to LARPing, it feels like that's our ambition as a company to try and, rather than having to pretend you're going through it or pretend you're a character, it's yourself experiencing it. So it's a very long-winded way of me, me being nostalgic about past shows, but-
1: No, a, we yeah. live for that here. That's, that's <laughs> there, there's, there, sometimes I think that's mostly what the audience, <laughs> Half the times what I want It's like tell me about a show I never saw. Um, also, because show, I can see it, you know. Yeah, and on
0: that show, we only did it for a brief run because it was back in the day, and we weren't. It was pre Sleep No More, actually. No, it's actually just Sleep No just opened. We, were, um, but we will definitely go back to that form because it's actually as precious to me as the mask shows are. It's just a completely different uh, performance language.
1: Well, and in both in both cases, this idea of of being allowed to be yourself in this fictional space. And I know that, you know, I mean, I, I have a theater background. I did a lot of LARPing in college, but it was that weekend that I went to New York and I saw sleep no more. And I, and I caught, then she fell on the same weekend. And it was coming out of those two shows that I saw the, the What I saw is the evolved form of what I had been doing in in Larping, which was like you said not having the artifice of character, not having a responsibility to uh carry along objectives or a plot. All I had to do was just react authentically yeah. and as someone who had done a lot of theater, done a lot of improv, it was it was really relaxing to not have the responsibility of, of carrying the show, but just needing to just respond honestly to the performers in front of me with whatever was going through me at that moment. And that felt like that freed them up to respond honestly in the structures they had been given. Yeah. And it felt like I finally found what I had been chasing for all oh. those years. Um and, and, and I know, it varies for people. There are some people who who very much, you know, f- there's some folks I think who think the LARP form is like, you know, the ne the Plus Ultra. But but f- for me, it, it, there's something almost like you're touching the sublime when you're able to just be yourself in one of these yeah. fantastical situations.
0: I mean, that's, that's yeah, that's beautiful. I think that's kind of what I feel too is like, there's, yeah, the sublime ecstasy of just being able to float through it because you're you're working on a completely instinctual level, like ideally, although I would hope these shows are cerebral and you can process it afterwards when you're in it, it's purely, uh, that sort of, um, in the immediacy of pure response. It's like just the left-hand side of the brain that you're operating mm-hmm. on. So it becomes a completely truthful response. Um, what's so interesting is how you talk about, like, you didn't want the weight of ob- objectives and missions and things. And it's funny that now here I am thinking about how we fold all those in whilst <laughs> maintaining the sort of the the, the floating dream world of it. Is it possible? The question we often ask ourselves here is that, um, is it possible to have both those two forces simultaneously or are they in opposition?
1: I mean, that's a real trick, isn't it? Right? Like right. how to instill that sense of purpose without making it feel like it's a checklist.
0: Yeah, we we did yeah. an interesting when well, we did Mask the Red Death, um, in London in this is way back you know, nine um, two thousand and seven. Uh, it was a collection of uh, Edgar Allan Poe short stories that we put uh, in one building, sort of eight short stories, um, and the ninety percent of it functioned like a sort of a, a conventional punch drunk um, mask show with audience free roaming and choosing their characters and narratives, but. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe, something I only learnt um, when we were researching it, actually invented the, um, the treasure hunt. And mm. uh, he, uh, his story, The Gold Bug, was the first classic X marks the spot um, tale. And he sort of massively popularised it. So at one point when we were planning the show, we were thinking, wow, this is really juicy. If you're doing his body of work, this is a, a sort of a sub-genre that we need to touch upon. And we thought about how we could stage it. It's not very interesting to, um, you know, to to see a character, you know, finding a map and then realizing there's a skull and having to drop a gold bug through the eye of the skull and, you know, finding where the uh, where the treasure's buried. We thought, well, I, is there a way that we could actually hide treasure within the building and get the audience to participate and actually will, will at some point over the six-month run, someone actually find the treasure? Huh. Uh, we worked with the amazing Coney, um, uh, another London theatre company to realise that um, and it was a really interesting uh, challenge which I think theatrically I mean what Coney built was amazing but it was a total failure in terms of um, rhythm and sensibility because you had nine mm. percent of audience floating around in their, in their fever dream of the show and then you had and they'd be work, a proper underwater tempo, really slowly moving through the space. Uh, and then suddenly you get someone barrel up and say, have you seen the gold bug? And they would be in pure mission mode, wouldn't be able to absorb any of the atmosphere. In fact, it was just pure binary. Yes, no, can I complete the next stage? Um, and the collision was so sort of brutal that we actually had to sort of take away the gold bug from the show duration and put remount it on our dark day because the two different audience drivers would just, would each was destroying the other one's experience. So that's my, my challenge now is I really want to come back to that. I really believe in objective and mission and, you know, can you, how do you level up within this sort of work? How do you, there's a doorway that's locked and you can only access it if you're a level five audience member. It feels like it's the ultimate in sort of democratizing, um, the work or like it's a proper meritocracy actually you know the harder you work literally the more access you can gain so so i think there's loads to be um excavated there but yeah break how do you avoid breaking the, the tonal um rhythm of it
1: yeah i mean part of it's like how do you harness that audience energy to to solve to be if nothing else amusing to everybody else so that when someone comes up in with you know that gold fever of like have you seen the gold bug wow. that it it enhances the experience of everyone else who's floating through the world yeah. uh, and and doesn't feel like 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 they belong there somehow like wow. like but something about building the world so that that feels natural and 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 for those who are on the float can just either be amused or if they want to be get wrapped up into it or be discomfited in the proper way. Yeah, of just a reminder of like, oh yes, there are those strivers in the world. Um,
0: absolutely, I totally agree. But what's interesting is it doesn't work with the mask form because mm. the mask removes the rest of the audience. I hope. Um, yeah, but that's There they yeah, and so you work as individuals. So actually, I think it would only work in a different kind of construct where your audience are present.
1: Uh, speaking of masks for a second. I remember when you were, there was an experiment being run, I think by some folks at MIT. Oh, yeah. With like the mask got rigged up. So there were little electrical impulses. They were like, what, running someone through the McKittrick like they were a rat in a (laughs) vein.
0: Yeah, it was, that was a great little test. In fact, if anything, the tech wasn't quite there at the point. It was um, very weighty. But uh, MIT did some amazing things. So the idea was, um, in fact, we're kind of starting to look at it here now, but um, in a different way. But what the experiment was, was um, could a live audience member in, in the Keptrick and or partner with someone at home in front of their computer digitally and have a shared experience? And so the way we set this up was that the live audience member, before they went into the show, they went into a little... Um, unused room and there was a Ouija board and they would be encouraged to sort of play with the Ouija board. Um, And I wish we still had this bit of gear because it was absolutely amazing. Um, And they could say, is there anyone there? And the little cup would go to yes, but it's automated, but it's actually being controlled by someone on the computer who's typing in yes, and they say, what's your name? And the person could write in their name and it would go And the idea being that the person who was at home in front of their computer had woken up by the banks of a river, but didn't know who they were. And they've got to try and work out, they've got got, um, amnesia and they need to try and remember who they are. And to do that, they need to piggyback on someone in the world of the living and unpick it. And so um, the person in the real world would be asked, um, I, you know, they would say, I need your help, will you help me? And if the person in the real world said yes, then that spirit in the other place, in the underworld, would then beam in to bone-conducting headphones that were logged in the mask. And suddenly, anything the virtual, the digital audience member typed on their computer would be spoken through the voice of a seven-year-old girl into oh the head of the live-action oh uh, oh, that's so and, creepy. <laughs> no, it was quite creepy. And then the two of them would embark on an adventure in the show. And so you'd be, you'd be essentially possessed as a live-action audience member. You'd have a voice in your head who would sometimes agree with you and sometimes want to go a different way. Um, and I think it had the, such an exciting sort of the bare bones of a brilliant show in its own right. But again, I think it's a similar thing to Master of the Red Death, where while sleep normal was mm. happening having this which was mission driven was it was in opposition to the to the rhythm of the show so it was that was uh, it was a block also you had a mobile phone the cell phone strapped to your mask as well which was quite awkward yeah.
1: um,
0: but it'd be great to come back to that and like the idea of how the digital world and the live action world can fit together is something we're, we're totally looking into because that is also the future
1: well and and I'll take this moment. You know, before we started, I mentioned PC games, and oh, yeah. and, and you, and you went, you went off for a second. So, uh, you do you get a chance to to play in that space a lot, or are there things that draw you in? Is there anything right now that's that's fascinating you? Because you've got you've got this part of you that's definitely deep into the digital world as well.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm now I'm kind of experimenting with a array of different game mechanics to try and work out what we can let be. Yeah, we've got a couple of projects, multiple projects that are looking at how we, we combine the two. So I've been playing lots of Elden Ring, like I imagine uh, most of the video games community has, just mm-hmm. because that set of mechanics is absolutely genius. The idea of failing to move forwards um, um, that you know, you need to learn from your mistakes. What's the theatrical equivalent of that? What's the idea of sort of gradually leveling up, of tuning your, your character, tuning your ability to move through the space? Spaces that are inaccessible because you're not experienced enough, how do you then gain access you know, a month later? Um, that's very, very interesting. In fact, actually, generally sort of like open world RPG mechanics I feel like it's what we're kind of doing to a certain extent by accident so how can we do it deliberately um, yeah it's it's. Um, I'm actually kind of just loving uh, weirdly now I feel myself find myself rather than watching films or television devouring games because um, I find myself just wanting to be in them um, and
1: Have you played I'm about to freak a couple of my friends out. Have you played uh, – there's a game called Inscription. Do you know about this one?
0: No, I do not because I'm going to have to write this down. What is it? Okay,
1: so it's it's spelled I-N-S-C-R-Y-P-T-I-O-N, so Inscription like that. Uh, and, and, and it's – you should give that one a whirl because it's – what it's doing is the base of it is – kind of a card game like yeah. a bit like magic the gathering and i've never been a, a big magic person but i i still enjoy this but this is one of those games where like where everyone's like don't tell someone too much about it because uh, yeah. there's there's things going on in it and i'd be ve- i'd just be very curious to see uh you can get it on steam uh it's yeah. it's it's yeah, easy know, to get it. like right yeah. give um, give it give it give it a whirl give it a whirl give give it a see if, see if you can see what's going on with it so <laughs>
0: Uh, and no no that sounds brilliant and i mean i've got a list of things that like um like immortality as well i'm gonna try and find (gasps) oh yes do that because it feels like you know we've we start to experiment with you know tv and it feels like i love basically my my sort of personal uh mission with any project is trying to break the rules of it how can you break the rules of theater and like oh how do you go? breaking rules of tv and it's very hard but it feels you, like you have to is,
1: um, yeah
0: is, is broken real ground so
1: I, you, you have to play immortality for figuring out how to break the rules of television and if, if breaking the rules is is your your deal you have to play inscription like double double down on that one and and um and i'll give you one bit of advice on immortality this is not a spoiler either if you play keyboard and mouse yeah <laughs> make sure to have headphones Make absolute sure. That's how I played. It went just fine. Do you, do you think uh, I can headwind...
0: play it on a on an aeroplane with the older uh, you know, the um, Steam have released their handheld device? uh Oh,
1: with the, with the uh, with the, with the with the Steam Deck, yeah. Um, look there's a lot of nudity and sex scenes in it so that depends on whether or not you you want you want everyone to think you're watching an R rated movie or maybe an <laughs> X rated movie on the airplane yeah. so that's fair enough to, to, as a warning um i don't know how it would be on a steam deck because there head, headphones are probably okay um they did a lot of work for controller uh yeah. and there's like a, there's a haptic loop in there that that makes oh, really? some things a little more legible um but I sort of enjoyed playing keyboard and mouse because it made it feel like I was working at a digital workstation on yeah, on, on digital sure. film files. So there's there's a trade off between the versimilitude and and the haptics of the controller. There are some people who are like I I I missed an entire layer of this because for hours for literally for hours because they weren't playing with a controller. Uh, but uh, but if you're wearing headphones, that's probably less. And knowing the way. Y'all layer your sound designs. I yeah. think you'd pick up on what was what was being laid down.
0: Oh, I can't wait. That's such a treat. It's, yeah, uh,
1: me. I want to. I want <laughs> Once you've played them both, uh, please report back. I, I really yeah, want to know what it, you think. It. Of them. <laughs> uh, video game hour. Uh, yes, everyone drink. Um, so, <laughs> um, going going back on track. Uh, when this this is a generic question, but still. When did you know this form worked? Was there a particular moment in a, in a production back in your undergraduate days? Or, or, or when, you, when you first did the, the, the show for one person and were you know, kind of almost kidnapping, it wasn't kidnapping people, but like inviting people out you know, to somewhere yeah. to go in by themselves. When did you know that this was viable and you could, you could build you know, everything f- forward from it?
0: It was, I can remember exactly, at the moment I can, I can actually feel it now, because it was probably when the, the path split and I took one, one fork. Um, but when we did, um, so for my finals at university, um, I did, um, we had to use a found space. That's why I'd gone to this university, purely because of this module at the end of the third year. And it was, uh, so I directed a production of Wojciech, uh, a Georg Buchner play, Oh yes. And it gave birth to the loop. It was like it's a twenty-minute. We picked sort of, um, you know, t- t- twelve episodic scenes and just ran it in the loop, um, the same as we do. The, you know, with have seen about sixty now. Um, and I remember thinking, oh, we had a beautiful territory army barracks, which has become was completely overgrown. Like these corridors were entwined, oh like 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 just nature was in control, and it That's almost
1: perfect for a check.
0: Yeah, exactly, a thick veil of ivy-covered everything, lit it the candles and collected human hair from all of the hairdressers in Exeter for a month before so to sort of do this sort of like homespun installations, um, and remember like four days before we opened, thinking, this is, this is good, it's atmospheric, but the audience get in the way, and having the epiphany that like, oh my gosh, if we just put the audience in masks, suddenly they disappear. Um, and all of that, you know, it's so crazy that, that one project has basically, you know, it's informed everything. Um, but what was amazing about that was it only happened for one night um, in Exeter. And um, as was the way, you know, all of the rest of my fellow directors and people who were at university my, my year came to see it. And it was very nice that like, my mates were supportive and my parents were very supportive. Um, but there was one girl... Uh, um, a, a fellow a peer, a lady in my class who we weren't that good friends. In fact, if anything, we didn't share that much in common. But she was there; but she had to come. And afterwards, she came up to me and said, "Well, oh, you know what? There is there is something in that. I mean, you should really do that again." And um, it was her saying, seeing the sparkle in her eyes, mm. that was a really truthful response. That. There was a, there was there was a magic there and just and it was so it was her encouragement, uh, Emily, that um, maybe maybe try and try it one more time and um, kept on trying until we are sort of twenty two years later. So and I think maybe that speaks to sort of uh, the belief that what I'm all about is the individual and as long as one person, it makes them gasp, it makes the hairs go up on the back of their neck. Then, you, then, it's, then we've won. Then that's, that's, you've, you've managed to sort of alter someone's being. Um, and it's all worthwhile.
1: I can't think of a better place for us to land the plane. So Felix, this has been delightful. I'm, I'm so glad I finally got a chance to talk to you. Um, Burnt City's play in London, Sleeping Wars in New York and Shanghai. Uh, you're all in the laboratory cooking up more alchemy, I imagine.
0: Yeah, sure are, and it's been an absolute delight talking to you. And like, I would love to come back and share thoughts of uh, the games and uh, and future projects as we're allowed to talk about them.
1: Please do, please do.
0: Thank you so very much. <laughs>
1: Once again, I want to thank Felix for being our guest on the show this week. Uh, I, I, we're gonna get him back. I want to hear what he thinks about uh, what he thinks about inscription uh, and what he thinks about immortality. That is just oh, uh, the, the thought of it. The thought of it's too delicious. Should we? Should we uh, make Felix our official uh, PC games reviewer? <laughs> Uh, If only I had won the lotto this week, I would pay for that. Um, So, yeah, no, sorry, everybody didn't buy that ticket in Altadena. Uh, It's not it's not going to be all sunshine and rainbows and no more begging for Patreon backing. Uh, You know, that's what would happen the second the second I get the lotto. Uh, Who not going to try and bring myself down (laughs) because I'm feeling good. I'm feeling really good uh, for the first time in three years. Yeah, for the first time in three years, uh, because this past weekend was The Dig, the Denver Immersive Gathering, and uh, we pulled it off. Uh, It it wasn't an easy thing, Uh, and uh, I think everyone who was there knew at certain points we were clearly in over our heads um, in certain ways. Uh, but luckily all of the stress was mostly on our side of the table, uh, our side being immersive Denver and my own, uh, and, and not on that of the attendees. It was great to get a chance to see some of you, uh, there, uh, you know, particularly got to see some of my sustaining backers. Of course, Lonnie hands on was there. I got, I stayed at Lonnie's place. He's got this little garret above his workshop. Uh, I got to, I got to tour camp Christmas, I am a gog at what Camp Christmas has turned into from from the year when uh, I was like coaching Lonnie through some stuff and and talking about what the project could be. We did some consulting on that and watching it grow and watching develop and what it started out as to what it is now, which is taking over this historic uh, sort of living museum space with all these amazing buildings, just Oh, I wish I could go back. I wish I could go back and see it once the build is done. Very exciting. Uh, really had a wonderful fishbowl conversation uh, facilitated by Betty Hart, who is one of the aso- uh, the assistant directors on Theater of the Mind, which is uh, there. Uh, Lonnie was the, the first person to kick it off, had a great bit. And then they brought on some local Denver artists, uh, folks from Odd Knock, uh, folks who are working on Theater of the Mind and, you know, David Byrne. Uh, the David Byrne talking Heads David Byrne, uh, also was came into the fishbowl uh, It was just just really, really magical. Uh, we got the Star Cruiser team out there. Uh, so we had Anne Morrow Johnson and Sarah Thatcher and Michael Tara Garver and uh, also running around with Scott Trowbridge. Uh, just just a really fantastic. I'm I'm still watching everyone together watching everyone talk, watching friend groups, uh, get, you meet each other, uh, like my own friends meeting each other, like from different places for the first time, watching folks we've known for years, talking to people we just met. Oh, when, Win Thorne was there, another one of our sustaining backers, um, gosh, who else, who else, uh, Elaine was there, uh, just, just really fun to see that whole crew. Uh, love, love getting everybody together. Got to meet Katrina, who's our Toronto correspondent. Got to meet Danielle Look, who's our Denver correspondent for the first time. Uh, got to meet one of the folks who still—I think they don't want me to mention their name—who's like helping us out on on everything immersive, uh, helping like fill out the thing. I, I, at some point, maybe they'll, they'll let us say like who it is because um, I want to thank them publicly. Uh, just, just getting to see members of the team we've never met before in person. Getting to watch everyone connect knowing that uh, got to see Nicholas Fortuno who's been covering some stuff for us in New York uh, I feel like it's romper room and I see and I see Ivan and I see Betty and I see uh just I could do that I could do that all day um one day and maybe I will do it all day maybe maybe we'll do an irregular where I do that but just just really it's it's been It's been a long time coming. A lot of, you know, we had two events that got canceled because of pandemic first, because of the original wave one, and then because of Omicron at the start of the year. And, and look, I knew I was broken. I was broken. I was broken by all of that. I knew I was broken. And right now sitting here talking about the event, um, it's becoming clear to me how broken I was. I carry myself differently right now because of what, what was pulled off and the way everyone, uh, just kind of came together. So I look forward to making more of this kind of work for all of you. Uh, look, I'm going to be, I'm going to drop in on Brett Jackson's Imagineer do wells this month coming here in Los Angeles. So hope to see some of you there for that. But we're also going to get some meetups happening, probably not a monthly. I think we're gonna get a quarterly meetup going in Los Angeles. Of course, there is the meetup that's happening next week in uh, New York at Gymnopedi. that's already uh, booked out. We're going to get more of those going on in New York. We're going to get those going in anywhere we have, uh, where we have life. Uh, the Immersive Experience Network in London—they're getting some. They've got some meetups and some summits going on. We're, we're intending to be working with them to be doing some stuff with them in London. I Just want to get the community together. We benefit so much from seeing each other. We benefit so much from trading information with each other in person, real time. It's what it's it's who we are at heart. And I'm I'm very excited. Uh, we, we definitely have plans brewing for next year. Uh, a lot of that I hope to come together in the next few weeks and to be able to tell you exactly what's going on at the top of the year. Uh, just really, really, really um, very, very, very excited about where all of this can go. Of course, at the same time, seriously, need that support on Patreon. It, you know, need, need folks to come through if you've got discounts or special offers or tickets you want to give away. Uh, all of that we can do. All of that helps make the Patreon more valuable for the people who pay in. I don't want to put all this stuff behind a paywall. That's an option. I don't really want to turn ads on on the podcast and then put the un version under the paywall. I don't even think I'd make more than like five bucks that way anyway. It's it's not worth the effort. I don't want to do any of that stuff. Just know that we we really do run off the generosity of the community. uh, And all I want to do is work harder. All I want to do now is work smarter and better. All I want to do is get enough resources that we can pay more people to do more service journalism, to do more features, to do more. Because this whole thing is growing. This whole thing, I want to create more avenues for opportunity. I don't want to just have it be that, you know, themed entertainment slurps us up. I don't want it just to be that the the big companies that have emerged into our space control it all. I want them to succeed. I want them to grow, but I also want independent companies. I want folks who just have a dream and a good idea and a lot of enthusiasm. I want to make sure that they're doing the best work that they can and that we're telling everyone about it. And I mean everyone. I want the world to know. So, at Patreon, please. Um, what else is up? Next week, uh, we've got Scarlett Kim of the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. She's coming through to talk about Quills Fest, which is on right now. This is a VR accessible uh, performance and XR fest- festival that's happening. Uh, You need uh, it's happening through both uh, the vast platform on PC, but also they've got a browser accessible version of it this time out. That's going to be running the whole month. Tickets are just 10 bucks. I'll put the note in the show notes. Scarlett's going to be on next week to talk about that. Also hoping to get uh, another like short interview with someone that isn't in the can yet. So I don't want to say what it is. Plus, a little bit later in the month, we're going to do our our gift guide. We're going to do the gift guide live on the podcast, well, not live, you know, but record on the podcast. And then we've got a few more fun interviews uh, in, you know, coming up. They're scheduled uh, some some cool things to talk about. We're going to be talking about uh, Overlook, uh, which uh, which is coming back next year in a big way. And just. Um, yeah. You can tell, I think you can hear in my voice just how much this has been a big recharge and how important it was for me to see all your faces um all right let's uh let's get on with the next part so i'm uh, gonna do the credits now i I'm wanna wanna I'm let you go for the week. I was gonna talk more about the jig, but i'm- just gonna, i'll maybe I'll do that in a regular I don't know um oh, and uh uh. Per Alex Kloom's request, uh, there will be a backer-only uh, episode where we talk about uh, Andor because I'm obsessed. He asked for it, so we're going to get it. Uh, and I just got to find—I'm uh, I'm, I'm asking a couple of people uh, who I love talking about this stuff with if, if, they'll, if they'll come on with me and, and we can do a deep dive. But scheduling everybody is tough, but that'll that'll happen before Andor is over, uh, I guarantee. We'll probably do two, one, one before it's over and, and one afterwards. Okay, <laughs> The associate producer of this podcast And uh, the rock upon which We're building much of this church these days Is Parker Sella Music for No Proscenium is by Chris Porter Of the Speakeasy Society and Solar the Podcast Special thanks to Siobhan O'Loughlin For voicing our intro See you soon Siobhan And this podcast is written, edited, hosted, produced And mixed by this madman right here I'm Noah Nelson And until next time I'll see you at the show.